Thanks for listening to the gathering from Storyline Church. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, It's a nice thought. Beauty is a matter of perspective, but whose perspective are we meant to value? Our own, our families, our peers? This past week at the gathering, we explored the concept of beauty and which beholder may offer the best perspective. The band shared songs by Broken Bells, Tom O'Dell, The Beach Boys, and Death Cab for Cutie. Let's have a listen.
Now, fashion's kind of wasted on me. You know, like those fashion shows? To me, fashion shows just look like skinny teenagers walking around in their parents' clothes looking for food. No food out there. All right, I'll change my outfit and look again. Fashion shows are rather absurd when you consider they're just people sitting around watching people walk around in clothes, which is what people do in clothes every day. But at fashion shows, they're so fascinated, they're like, oh my gosh, oh wow. Look at that person walking close. How do they do it? Oh, if only we could watch them do laundry. Oh, Jim. Good morning. It's, it's great to be together again. It's good to uh, have my voice back. It feels good to be able to breathe and not feel like I'm underwater, so that's good. And I think... My technology is going to work. Yes, it is working, so we can move forward. Um, prayer does work, everyone. Uh, no, it's good to be together. Um, let's get into this. So uh, last time I spoke, I shared a video of, of our daughter, Quinn, and she was crawling all over our living room. And, and Bo has been kind of at this curious phase where he wants to know what's happening in this room. And so he's come to the gathering a couple times and was in the gathering that morning. Um, and he, he came up to me afterwards and he was all miffed uh, and peeved that I didn't show any pictures of him. So, uh, so to keep it fair to my son, I put together a little slideshow to start us off this morning. Here's one of him playing hockey last weekend at the Van Andel Arena, uh, which is, was super fun um, and just a great time. Here's one of him and Allie at the Valentine's Day party that they had at Brown School. Uh, and here's one that he took of himself without our consent or our knowledge, you know. Uh, it's, isn't that fun when you open up your, your photo reel to find like a screenshot or your insurance card and you discover multiple pages of eye selfies, you know, just like <laughs> scrolling all the way through. You're like, well, great, now I've got to delete these. But you don't want to, right? You, you want to save them for the graduation party one day, just a whole board full of eyes his eye. Uh, it's, been a, it's been an exciting parenting season, right? We're 70% of the way through the school year, uh, and Bo has taken the bus most days, which is a risk. Uh, he has all kinds of questions about subjects that we were not ready to deal with, so it's, it's been an interesting season at the Knapp House, for sure. Uh, a lot of those questions um, decide to come out in public when we're around other people, uh, such as he'll notice something out loud that shouldn't be noticed out loud. Like, Mom, why is that guy old? Or, why is her hair that color? Or, why are they so large? <laughs> okay. And it's always loud enough for these people to hear, and then you snap, and snap at your kid, and, and you, regret, you regret it, but now you're faced with double judgment because of what your kid said and what you're saying to your kid. It's just a mess. Anyway. Uh, a few weeks ago, um, he and I were walking into Martin's, and we stepped through the doors behind uh, a woman who didn't, she didn't have any arms. And uh, I didn't notice it at first. I was trying to remember what the third thing I was supposed to pick up. Uh, but he sure enough did notice out loud at a volume loud enough for the entire store to hear. He looks up to me and goes, Dad, why doesn't she have any arms? Ooh. So I just sped up and tried to distance myself, saying, I don't, I don't know who this kid that is. This, I don't know who is responsible for him. Uh, at the heart of it, though, he's beginning to notice what makes people different from one another, right? In my best parenting moments, I'm able to contain that embarrassment and, and hear the intention behind his question and try to both accommodate the person he offended and the, the fairly innocent question that he's asking. And certainly there's, there's times when it's not innocent, but at the heart of all of it is he's just thinking and feeling these things that make him different. And he's noticing in other people. And, and then he's subconsciously projecting that outwardly without the filter that will develop over the next few years. 
there's just, there's just no preparing you for parenting a five-year-old. Uh, so hopefully they're preparing me to parent a six-year-old. We'll see. Uh, we're, we've begun fielding questions about race, about his race, way earlier than we expected to. We're fielding questions about his body that we weren't expected to be asked at this age. He's a big kid. He's a proportional kid, but he's nearly 40 pounds above the average. And, and so he's thinking about the things that make him different all the time. Um, and sometimes to the point where he'll get sad or mad about it. Uh, it's, so it's hard, um, but I remember, I remember feeling that way too. Uh, as you may have guessed, I was the big kid in school. I was always taller than everyone and certainly more portly than, uh, than the average. Uh, I started wearing adult clothes when I was in third grade. I weighed 150 pounds by fifth grade and I haven't weighed less than 200 since seventh. Um, so, I, and you know, I just always jiggled in places that nobody else jiggled in, right? It was just a, just a bummer. Um, I just love to eat. Anybody else love to eat, right? Uh, I paid the price for it. I was called the garbage disposal in middle school because I'd, I would stock the lunchroom like a vulture and just and try to find any of the leftover cheese sticks and chicken fingers that, you know, the non-garbage disposal kids would leave behind. Um, and at a certain point, I just, I began to embrace it. Uh, does anybody remember AOL Instant Messenger? Yeah, it was like texting before there was texting. It was the only place I had the confidence to talk to girls. Uh, those were the days, right? Um, well, my, my aim, my AOL Instant Messenger username was, was FatNap16, and that's fat, not with a PH, right? It was the traditional spelling. Um, I learned quickly that I was not going to be able to live up to the beauty standards that society had, had put out for me. And so I'll, I was going to have to stand out and make a name for myself in a different way. So I cultivated and developed a very self-deprecating sense of humor. Uh, in my senior year of high school, I, I had my most current nickname, which was Gigantor. I had it printed on the sleeve of my basketball sweatshirt, uh, just embracing it. I figured if I could make fun of myself, then I couldn't be hurt or surprised when it came from somewhere else. Now, as, adult, as an adult, I, I guess I assumed it would all go away, and I'm, I'm shocked that I still think about this every single day, every single morning when I wake up. I thought it was something that I would grow out of, but I, I still don't like to take my shirt off at the beach, and I don't like wearing clothes that fit too tightly. Um, and I lear but I've learned now, halfway through my fourth decade, uh, is that Bo and I are not alone when it comes to this type of stuff. We're all thinking about ourselves all of the time. Perhaps it's not exclusively physical beauty, but to a certain extent, I'd venture to say that all of us are wondering what makes life beautiful. All of us have a different something or different image that comes to mind when we think of that word beauty. Maybe you think of your partner or your children or your waistline or or a place that you've never been, or a place you've been a hundred times. Maybe it's an art piece or a song. Regardless of what does come to mind, I'm, I'm fairly certain that something probably does. The tricky thing is that not all of us are thinking the same thing at the same time. We don't have a universal definition of beauty that can really work for all of us. Science speculates that beauty in humans, is tied to the symmetry of a person's face, but even still, that's, that doesn't, that's an overgeneralization. It doesn't account for personality. It doesn't account for shared experiences. It doesn't account for attraction. It merely assumes that visual attraction is the only qualifier for human beauty. There's no universal definition of beauty that accommodates all of us. So our personal definition then becomes the definition the only definition that matters, which then manifests itself as competing worldviews that are completely dependent on how we see the world and understand how it works. We see this play out across, um, we see this play out like in, in international cultures and how attraction is very different depending on where you grow up in the world. It plays itself out as partisan politics or as religion. And even within religions, we see it as denominations that are competing with another, another who, who has the right to understand what makes life the most beautiful. When we begin to see beauty as something that's achievable, something that we long for, we begin to settle for if-onlys, right? 
If only I could have that. If only I could look like that. If only I could go there. If only I could be as smart as. If only I would have gotten that promotion. If only I wouldn't jiggle when I brush my teeth. And all of the sudden, beauty has this list of requirements and to-dos. Something we long for and only dream about. Right? It becomes the sacred object. That thing, the idea, the life, the hope, the dream, the longing. If only I could find it or achieve it, then I could find the beautiful life. And then I could be happy. A great example of this is the American dream, right? It's the ultimate manifestation of this temptation. If only I could pull myself up by the bootstraps just enough, and then I could have that house with that partner and have those kids and that job, and then I could, and then I could laugh at those jokes and go to that church, then I could have the beautiful life. However, we don't have to think very long before we realize that it isn't beautiful at all. See, the issue with the sacred object, right, this thing that we're pursuing, is that its pursuit will end in one of two ways, depression or despair. If we're unable to grasp that sacred object, if we're unable to attain the beautiful life that we so desperately envision, we, then we find ourselves depressed. I don't have what I believe that I need. And if we do, in fact, achieve it, if we find the thing that we're longing for, even though we might find a temporary moment of happiness within that, we will inevitably discover that we'll inevitably discover that we'll be in despair, right? Because actually getting what we want is never as satisfactory as longing for it. We see this in early childhood development. A four-year-old may see a friend playing with a toy that they don't have, and then what happens, right? They beg to play with that toy. No other toy will work until they can play with that toy. That's all they want. It's all they can think about. It consumes every part of their day and their desire. But then what happens when they get the toy? Three minutes later, they've moved on to the next one. It was the fear of missing out, the fear of not knowing what their life could be like without that toy, the fear that somehow life wasn't fair or complete without it. And then when they get it, they see it for what it is. It's just another toy, right? Just another temporary satisfaction of pleasure that will be replaced by something else in a matter of moments. So, so much time and effort and energy, striving to achieve and grasp and accumulate and seek the beautiful light, it, it eats away at us, right? Depression and despair are no ways to live. And so we, f- we find ourselves trying everything to be or to look like the thing that we so desperately desire. And then we make sacrifices and concessions to become that thing we are not. But I'm not sure that's what life is meant for. Hello, I'd like to become Jewish. Who would be in charge of that? How old are you? I'm 10. Please hold. Hello, this is Rabbi Schneiderman. To whom am I speaking? Hello, this is Sheldon Cooper. Hello, Sheldon. Um, how can I help you? I'm currently a Baptist, and I'd like to convert to Judaism. A Baptist named Sheldon? Okay. And why do you want to convert? Very simple. It's my intention to become a great scientist, and I couldn't help but notice most of the great scientists are Jewish. So logic dictates it's time to switch teams. Well, I'm sure there are many Baptist scientists you could emulate. That's kind of you to say, but other than Cornelius Treble in the 1500s, it's pretty slim pickings. (laughs) Well, Sheldon, you sound like a very smart young man. Oh, you have no idea. Can I ask how your parents feel about this? Well, when I presented them with my plan, the words over my dead body were used. (laughs) I'm not surprised. But they were similarly resistant when I wanted to get an ant farm, and eventually they came around. All right, here's what I'm going to tell you to do. Read your Bible. Already did, cover to cover. Really? Quiz me. No, that's okay. I believe you. All right. My advice to you 
is to stay with the faith of your parents. What else you got? Okay. Then I'm going to tell you to be your own man. But I want to be a great scientist like Albert Einstein. Sheldon, when your days are over, God will never ask you, why weren't you Einstein? But he might ask you, why weren't you Sheldon? Why weren't you Sheldon? During my, uh, during my first two years of high school, I had, the fa I had this fascination, which was probably more like an obsession, with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So much so that for a while, my, my nickname in high school was Turtles, one of the few nicknames that I had that didn't reference my size. Although I'm thinking about it right now, maybe it did reference my speed. Um, <laughs> Just, they could have just called me Paul and it would have been fine, you know? Uh, I had the shirts, I had the toys, I loved watching the show and the movies and reading the comic books. Needless to say, I was a very popular kid. Um, anyways, at a certain point I decided that I loved Ninja Turtles so much that I was going to become a great collector of all things Ninja Turtles. And so I would I'd be, start hunting for the toys and the memorabilia at Goodwills and garage sales and quickly realized that these items were often broken or missing pieces, which would simply not do for a collector of my caliber. So I, uh, coincidentally, around the same time, this brand new revolutionary piece of technology was coming on the scene called eBay. And I had a whole new obsession put out in front of me. I would spend hours every day scouring the eBay for vintage Ninja Turtles and giant lots of these toys still in their boxes, they went for dozens of dollars. Uh, and so I saved every penny I had and coerced my parents that every holiday was worthy of giving gifts. Um, and slowly but surely, I began accumulating these rare toys. Now, you may not know this, but there's thousands of different variations of Ninja Turtles and tons of different characters that you can collect. However, the, the crown jewel of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle collectors are the original 10 from the animated TV show in 1988. It's the first year the TV show was, came about, and so they released 10 toys. Um, that would be the four turtles, Shredder, Splinter, a foot soldier, Bebop and Rocksteady, and April Neal. Of course you know this. <laughs> I got about eight out of the original 10, right? <coughs> Excuse me with a couple of other toys sprinkled in. I even, I even started going to Meyer and, and scrounging up all of the new toys that were coming out from the movie that was released that year. Uh, and I was thinking one day these would be worth something, something I could pass off to my kids, some kind of inheritance. And I still have all of them, right? They're in a box next to a tub filled with Beanie Babies down in my basement. <laughs> and I keep, I keep thinking this is the point in life where Bo would get the most out of these toys but I won't open them up, right? They just sit there in their boxes. Their worth is dependent on them staying in their package, but their enjoyment is tied to the ability to play with them. It's this paradox. I don't even, I don't even have them displayed anymore. I did, but then one of Bo's friends dismantled my Lego Millennium Falcon, and so all my collectibles got put away after that. So they mean absolutely nothing to me unless I sell them or I open them up. Their value is solely dependent on someone else one day purchasing them and either opening them and enjoying them or just showcasing them and then they're stuck in the same predicament that I am. Toys weren't meant to be art pieces, I'm told and learning. Uh, they were, they're meant to be played with, right? Believe it or not, the Bible tells us a very similar story. Uh, Jesus, during his life, he told a number, of, a number of parables to anyone who would listen. And near the end of his life, he begins to tell stories about what he called the kingdom of God. And it's no coincidence that Jesus begins to focus his attention on this kingdom as he spends more and more time with the people of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, uh, we have to think about it, it's as valuable to the Jewish faith as the Vatican is to the Catholic faith, right? It is the promised land. Uh, perhaps you're familiar with stories, the stories of Moses, right? The burning bush the plague, the splitting of the Red Sea. You've heard, or you've heard of, or maybe you've celebrated Passover. 
Um, well, this well, Passover, this holiday, is celebrated to remember Moses and his exodus um, of the Jewish people from slavery in Egypt. And then they would then, from that exodus, be delivered into the promised land. And at the heart of this promised land is a city called Jerusalem. And 4,000 years later, we still call it that. This was the city on the hill, the place that God had promised his people. And over the course of four millennia, the Jews had survived oppression and persecution and multiple instances of slavery. And what lasted was the city or this kingdom, if you will, uh, that God had promised them thousands of years earlier. So to the people of Jerusalem that Jesus was talking to, Jerusalem was the kingdom of God. This is not a detail that would have been lost on Jesus at the peak of his ministry, right? He begins to preach about the kingdom of God. It would have turned some heads, right? Especially in, in Jerusalem. So when he talks about the kingdom of God, we have to read it as a rebuke and a contrast to the kingdom that had been built. So it's in this city, right, where we see Jesus go into the temple, the dwelling place of God, and, and he turns over the money-changing tables, claiming that his father's house had been turned into a den of robbers. Clearly, Jesus has stepped into Jerusalem, into this kingdom of God, and he sees that this was not how it was supposed to be. Well, in the midst of these stories, right, in these parables about the kingdom of God, Jesus tells this rather short and obscure parable about a man in a field. And so Matthew 13 says this, The kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, went and sold all he had and bought that field. That's it. That's the end of the story. There's nothing more to it than that. It's rather cryptic, right? What is this treasure that's so great that it's worth selling everything for? And we never learn, right? He never explains, here's what the treasure is. Here's what's buried in the field. However, this story to us, no matter how cryptic it is, is very relatable, right? We all have this treasure in our, in our lives, this sacred object that we'd be willing to go and give everything for. Like, like I mentioned earlier, it's the job or the partner or the car or the Ninja Turtles, Two weeks ago, we talked about idolatry, and certainly we're wading into those same waters, but this feels even deeper than my idols of pleasure and safety and religion. This, this feels like, um, it feels beyond my own autonomy. The draw towards this sacred object, the key to the beautiful life, becomes not just an idol, but it becomes an identity. As as if we wouldn't even know what to do without it.
Life would still go on, believe me The world could show nothing to me So what good could living to me? God only knows what I'd be without you Thanks, guys. That was awesome. The kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field. And so with the rest of our time this morning, I'd like to wonder together what this rather cryptic story from these ancient scriptures can mean for all of us. And I think the Bible uh, has left us a couple clues, a couple breadcrumbs uh, to go on this journey together. So we're going to dive into the deep end of the pool here which I often like to do, so bear with me. I realize that I'm a little all over, over the place this morning, but think of it like how Hollywood and Cleveland and Lincoln all somehow end up in Baroda, right? Well, <laughs> this is the same thing, right? Just think to yourself, the beautiful life is Baroda, you know? So this morning I want to focus in on the first chapter of the Bible. But, even, but before we do that, there's a couple things, a couple uh, understandings that uh, I'd like to go over that I think are pivotal, pivotal to understanding this beautiful poem that begins our scripture. Oh, come on. So the Bible, it's not just a book, but it's actually a library of books, right? It's songs and letters and poems and myth and biographies. And there's 66 books in the Protestant Bible and there's 73 in the Catholic Bible. And what's interesting about these books is that they're not ordered chronologically, as in they're not ordered or sorted by date. A large council around the year 300 uh, in the town of Nicaea, they got together and they ordered the Catholic Bible as we know it today, and it was not a clean or comfortable process. Great debate was had over which of these sacred scrolls would be included in the final draft, and there were plenty that didn't make it. Um, and not everyone was happy with that, right? In fact, one of the bigger debates at this council came around the inclusion of the book of Revelation, as many thought that it should not be included in the final version of the Bible. And it caused one of the first denominational divides in the Christian church. Anyways, the point is that these books are not ordered and sorted by date, right? If they were, the first book of the Bible would be Job. And the last book would be Second Peter, which was written about 90 years after the death of Jesus, about 120 uh, CE. Um, so why is all that important? Well, the book of Genesis, the first book in our Bible, it's, it's completed, it's edited and brought together around the year 400 BCE, 400 years before the birth of Jesus. And that's about 1,000 years after Moses delivered the Jewish people from Egypt. And so we often credit Moses with the authorship of Genesis, and I believe that to be the case. But it isn't until a thousand years later that his scrolls and his writings and his stories are all collected. They're written down on one sheet, and they're added upon. And one of those additions to the book of Genesis is this first poem that we find in the first chapter of the book. And so there's a lot here that we could unpack. But let's start with the timing. The year is 400 BCE, and this is a key detail. Because at this time in, Jewish his, in the Jewish history, Jerusalem, or the Promised Land, has been taken over by the Babylonian Empire. Around 600 B, 
BCE, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar lays siege to Jerusalem and takes the Jews as his slaves. Well, amongst the many differences between these two cultures, one of the primary ones is that the Babylonians had a polytheistic religion. They believed in multiple gods, and none of them were the Jewish god, Yahweh. They did, however, believe that one god was more powerful than the rest, and that's, that god's name was Marduk. And Marduk was one pretty bad dude, according to Babylonian mythology. In the civil war of the gods, they believed that Marduk, who reigned victorious over all other gods, and out of that victory, the heavens and the earth were born. This, this was the Babylonian creation story that was told during the time uh, when they conquered the Jews. This is, this is its English translation. And Marduk stood upon Tiamat's hinder parts, and with his merciless club, he smashed her skull. He cut through the channels of her blood, and he made the north wind bear it away into secret places. Slicing Tiamat in half, he made her ribs the vault of heaven and earth. Her weeping eyes became the source of the Tigris and the Euphrates. Her tail became the Milky Way. With the approval of the elder deities, he took from Kingu the tablet of destinies, installing himself as the head of the Babylonian pantheon. Kingu was captured and later was slain. His red blood mixed with the red clay of the earth. It would make the body of humankind created to act as the servant. This is a brutal story, and it would make a great miniseries on HBO. But it's, it's a terrible creation narrative, right? The beginning of earth, as we know it, starts with pain and death and destruction. It's a bloody and violent moment. And to make matters worse, it concludes with the implication that humankind was made only to serve, to serve as slaves to the gods. The Jews in Babylon would, would have heard this story and they balked at it, right? This was not their God, Yahweh. This was not his heart. This was not the God of reconciliation and deliverance that they had loved and worshipped uh, through exile and into the promised land and through the building of the kingdom. This, this was a very different version of the world than they knew to understand. And so these enslaved Levite priests decided to write a new story, a story about their God who was not a God of death and destruction and violence, but a God of peace and grace and beauty. And we can see some similarities and details in the Genesis creation story and the Bible. Right? The Bible says that God used the dust of the ground to form the first man, and from man's rib he formed a woman. Right? These inclusions are not by coincidence. This was a direct message of rebellion and revolution that this God was different. So let's read the other creation story that begins to surface around the same time. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, God was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, and that was the first day. See, this was a God who brought light into dark places, who saw something that was missing, and he brought it to completion. And then he calls it good. And for 30 more verses, these captured Jewish priests go on to paint a picture of a God who weaves together humanity uh, in a garden where growth and goodness and beauty are weaved and woven into the very fabric of the earth. He creates the sun and the moon and the stars and the trees and the mountains and the fish and the birds and the mosquitoes and the beasts and the land. And after each new creation, he calls it good. And on the sixth day, as a final crescendo to complete this creation symphony, God creates humankind. And it says in verse 27, so God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then he gives his image bearers their first commission. He says, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and every other living creature that moves on the ground. And we realize right here and right then in verse 28 that God does in fact have a plan for this world. And that plan is us. 
Instead of God making humankind out of death and destruction to serve as his slaves, he creates humankind out of goodness, asking us to care for the earth, asking us to take dominion over it. And then looking at all he had made, capstoned by humankind, the Bible says, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. The Hebrew word here for very good is the words tov meod, and it can be translated as the best of the best of the very, very best, right? And who's he talking about? He's talking about us, right? We, you and I, humankind, we are the best of God's creation. This is our starting line. This is the beginning of our story, not the end. The beginning of our story is love and grace and goodness and beauty. Then this divine image is already and inherently flowing within us, and it's what connects all of us to each other. You see, these stories, this story in particular, it's in direct contrast to an origin story of death and destruction. This was rebellious and it was revolutionary and it was about a new kind of power in the world that was only found through grace and goodness. Sometimes it would stop raining long enough for the stars to come out. And then it was nice. It was like just before the sun goes to bed down on the bayou. Those old million sparkles on the water. Like that mountain lake that was so clear, Jenny, it looked like it would Two skies, one on top of the other. And then in the desert, when the sun comes up, I couldn't tell where heaven stopped and the earth began. It was so beautiful. I wish I could have been there with you. The beauty that God has weaved into creation from the beginning, it echoes in all of us. We feel it in the goosebumps in our arms just by watching that clip, right? It's the sunset over Lake Michigan. It's the smell of the trees blooming in springtime. It's a, it's a long meal with a close friend. It's a smile of a newborn baby. It's the touch of our partner's hand. This is the treasure buried in the field. But here's the trick. Just like toys trapped in a box, collected dust and unused, the treasure that's buried in this field that this man in this story has sold everything for, right? This treasure is worthless. It means nothing unless it's shared, unless we choose to participate with it. Its value is only realized when it's given away. It's the ultimate paradox, right? This man Jesus is talking about has nothing now. He sells everything so he can buy this field with the treasure in it. He has nothing except joy. As we talk about insistently here at Storyline, the nature of joy is that it must be shared, right? You can't hoard it. You can't stow it away in a box collecting dust. and that It's just no good. In order for it to be joy, it has to be shared with others. So when this man finally finds the treasure in the field, it's his joy that defines its value. And here's the twist, right? 
Here's what Jesus is trying to get us to understand in this rather cryptic and confusing story about the kingdom of God is it's not that we are the treasure, it's that we are the field, right? We are the field that the treasure is buried within. It's not in some far-off land or in some unachieved goal or some unmet dream. It's something we long for or, or something we long for, the treasure, the beauty of life. It's within us. That's where our story begins. It's inherent. It's, we were made in that image with God breathing us into existence out of grace and goodness and beauty. Now, I'm not saying that you need to leave here and sell all of your things in order to find joy and happiness. It's, it's not about the selling necessarily. It's about learning to let go of the temptation to believe that we could somehow find meaning in our stuff. And instead, we must find it in the very nature of the beauty that has already been placed within us from the beginning. Thank you, Sinai. Yeah, she's good. So, so Bo and I are walking into Martin's, and I'm trying to remember if it was milk or bread or cream cheese that I needed, and then out of nowhere, Dad, why doesn't she have any arms? Buddy, stop. That's not very nice. All of us are made different and unique, and it's not okay to draw attention to those differences. Needless to say, I was embarrassed, right? I was praying that maybe she was also hard of hearing. Uh, so Bo looked away, but I'm not quite sure he understood why I was frustrated. Um, and he was quiet for a while. And then out of nowhere, he asks, Dad? Yeah, buddy? So some people don't have arms? Yeah, man. It's, it's really hard and sad thing. Can you imagine if you didn't have arms, right? We have to appreciate that right now we do. And he pauses again. I'm red in the face, adjusting our route, trying to avoid the glance. Maybe we won't have to see her again. And then he stops. We're walking and he stops. And he looks up at me and goes, 
So she can't hug? <sighs> Nothing prepares you for parenting a five-year-old. So I stopped with him and I said, nobody, she needs us for that. We are the field. The beauty is breathed into all of us from the beginning. It's not something we become, it's something we are. And the treasure that is worth everything is already in us. Your worth, your value, it's already established. It's already set. There's nothing that you can do to change it. We are the field that the treasure is buried in. We are worth selling everything for. We just have to be willing to give it away. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Lord, we are gracious for, this, for the new story, the story of love and grace and goodness and beauty that you have made us with. Lord, may we believe that with every step that we take. Lord, and may it be our striving to make those around it believe it about themselves as well. You call us your masterpiece, Lord. May we not just believe that about us, but we believe that about our neighbors here, as you say, in Jerusalem and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Lord, bless us as we go. You give good gifts to your kids, and this is one of them. In your name we pray. Amen. Have a wonderful Sunday, my friends. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to The Gathering from Storyline Church. Have a blessed week.